Well, good morning, Grace. Hey, if you want, you can turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel, Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're looking at the life of David together. Some would say that year 1934 would be a year without hope. January 1st, it starts like this. Nazi Germany passes a law. It's, it's called the Nazi Eugenics Law for the... Uh, I'm sorry, for the prevention. Nazi eugenics law for the prevention of genetically diseased offspring. I wonder if Jews would be considered genetically diseased. They pass a law like that. On January 15th, there's an earthquake, the largest ever recorded in Nepal. 6,000 to 10,000 people were killed. August 2nd, Adolf Hitler becomes the Fuhrer. Two weeks later, they put to the national vote the idea of having a special render re- referendum to, to cause him to be the supreme chancellor, the, the dictator of Germany. And it passes with 90% of the popular vote saying he should be our dictator. Meanwhile, Churchill is entering what's called the wilderness years, where he will be isolated and humiliated for some of his views. Back here in the United States, Bonnie and Clyde had killed two young highway patrol officers in North Texas. Babyface Nelson and John Dillinger and the other wild boars are running wild throughout our country, destroying everything they touch. It was during the Great Depression, and it was a Great Depression. Not just economic, but but even the land itself, it was during the Dust Bowl. Everything, everywhere you looked, was dead. In all four corners of the world, there was serious unrest taking place. Assassination, coup attempts, civil wars, even in major powers like Russia and China. It was a year of, <laughs> of no hope. And the years that follow, Nearly every single human life would be touched significantly. It would be affected. And that same year, in November, a young boy walks up the aisle, repents of his sins, and surrenders his life to Christ. Later on, Billy Graham would come and preached to over 210 million people in 185 different countries. And because of the message and the power of the gospel that he brought, hundreds of thousands of men and women would have their lives changed significantly for eternity. And so somewhat of the point of that is to say, in hindsight, we can... (laughs) We can look back and we see how God is moving mysteriously. We don't understand always, but we can, we can see that he works. And it's the here and now that seems especially difficult to trust God. Because when we're in the here and now, having to use our faith where we are, we're too close to it. <laughs> we're so close to what's happening right in our midst that we lose our eternal perspective. And what we're going to look in, when we look at 1 Samuel chapter 16 today, what we're going to see is God's view, what he sees. 
and how world history is going to pivot on the head of a pin. Human history will change. This is the day the universe changed, and the day that the universe changed is like a common day. That's the point. It just seems like any other day. When we left the story last week, we saw that the first king of Israel, his name is King Saul, and he was the people's choice. And he loved the people more than he loved God. And he put himself above Jehovah for the last time. And we see at the end of chapter 15, giving us context, until that day, Samuel, until the day Samuel died, he did not go and see Saul again. And though Samuel mourned for him, and even the Lord was grieved that he made Saul king of Israel. Oh, what could have been done? What might have been done? This is a time when there's not a lot of hope in Israel. But in chapter 16, it's a new day. But it's a day like all the other days. Samuel is overwhelmed with grief. He is living a year without hope. And hope, hope gives us it makes us light. It, 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 gives us, it gives us brightness. And without hope, he feels like gravity is especially difficult on this day. He's weighed down with that. He feels like he weighs a thousand pounds. He's sunk into his mattress, does not want to get up. He could go outside on a clear day at high noon and feel like a shadow is following him around. That's the power of that darkness that's around him. It's because he's too close to what's happening. He doesn't have an eternal perspective. He's not backing up and seeing what God might be doing. Not a few miles south of there, Saul, the king, sitting under a pomegranate tree, checking his approval ratings, seeing how the people like him. He's more afraid of being rejected by the people than being rejected by God. That's clear. And his commitment to being popular over obedience will absolutely and completely destroy him slowly and painfully. That's the rest of his story. There's a third character. He doesn't have a name. He's a shepherd boy. He's about 12 years old, and he's waking up with his sheep, making sure they're all there, knows them all by name, picks up his sling, looks at a tree, aims at a branch, no a twig, no a leaf, bing, gets it. And the whole time he's singing, he's singing about the glory of God and the glory of his creation. He thinks it's going to be like any other day, pretty quiet day, not a care in the world. And the point is, this is the day that God invades his planet to make things right. It's a common day. It's like any other day. It could be like today, if God chooses that to be true. This day, chapter 16, verse 1, is the day where God dries his own tears and says, it's time to move forward. Look what he says in verse 1. Jehovah said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king of Israel? <laughs> you ever heard that from the Lord? I've heard that. Like, you have mourned sufficiently. You have mourned long enough. And now you're, belay you're just dragging. It's time to stop about the past and even the present. Let's move on to the future. Let's see what God is doing. God is at work. The rest of the verse. So he says, 
fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. I have picked my king. A better translation, a, a perfect translation would say this. I have seen it to myself a king. I have seen it to myself to a king. I've seen it. I've made that king happen. But the, re the reason I'm saying seen it is because the, the idea of seeing and looking is a primary word of importance throughout all of books, First and Second Samuel, because it is in. That's why we have it in red letters there. It means that it's, it's what God sees and what God, whatever you see, whatever you value, and a lot of times what you put your hope or your faith in. Because the theme, the first lesson we're going to learn here is to see spiritual. Seeing spiritually. That'll be the giant contrast in the big punch today. So the story goes that Samuel hears this from the Lord. He goes to Bethlehem. He's greeted on the outskirts of town. He's bringing a heifer with him to, to offer as a sacrifice. And the, the town is, says it's trembling with fear. They send their mayor and their city council out there and they say, hey, hey, hey. You're coming in peace, right? We heard about what you did to King Agag in that last chapter. You didn't bring a sword, right? And he says, I have come in peace. He replies, I have, yes, I have come in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And so then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Consecrate. I want you to understand what that means. It means go get cleaned up. Get on your church clothes. We're going to slaughter this heifer. We're going to have to cook this over an open fire. Then we're ultimately going to have a barbecue. Then I'm coming to give this anointing. It's going to take time. Hours pass. And then finally they're ready for this blessing of one of the members of Jesse's family. And verse 5 says, And when they arrived, Samuel saw what he sees. Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest. And he thought, Surely Jehovah's anointed stands before, uh, here before me in the Lord. This is the one. This is what I see. Next verse. This is what I value. But Jehovah said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. Jehovah does not look at things people look at. Because people look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Look, that's what he sees. What you see, you value. What you value, you put your hope in. It's where you're putting your trust, where you're putting your faith. And it's saying here, like, man sees beauty and power and success. And Jehovah sees character. The, the Lord's eyes, it says, the Lord's eyes are looking throughout all the world to and fro, looking to strongly encourage those whose hearts, their character, is committed completely to him. The next brother steps up, verse 8. This is Jesse calls Abinadab. And he had passed in front of Samuel, and Samuel said, well, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And then he brings the third board, Shammah. Still, the Lord has not chosen him. And the rest of the brothers, there's seven brothers, the complete number. Wow, everybody's here. 
and no one gets a blessing. This is our first lesson, that Samuel himself is spiritually blind. Samuel is seeing things like all mankind sees. All of men see things differently than Jehovah God. Samuel, he hears the Lord's voice as a small child. He's raised in a monastery since he was a young lad. He's got 50 years of nothing but ministry as a priest and a judge. And he has a worldly view? Yeah, you can bet we do. (laughs) He sees as man sees. We value appearance, beauty, status, like skills, success. And none of these reflect who we really are. None of these are talking about our character. All of these things are temporal. They're superficial. They can be lost in a moment. And we're spiritually blind to that. That's what we care so much about. But the spirit of a soul is what we are unable to see. And God says, look, the heart, the character is infinitely more valuable because it's the heart and the character that is, is the true self of who that person is. And if this is true for Samuel in those days, oh, how much more today? We are living in this culture, in this place, in, at this time, like no other time in all of human history, being absolutely inundated by this superficial value system of how man sees. I'm talking about like no other time, not even, not a century ago for sure, but like 10 years ago, five years ago. It just keeps getting worse at an exponential rate, skin deep values, how we keep score of what matters in our own lives and in the lives of the people we, we interact with. Here's a great example. Here's a magazine cover that says, what Michelle Pfeiffer needs. I mean, it's an open spread. Look, it opens up. It says, absolutely nothing. What's interesting about this particular magazine cover is that someone found an itemized list from the photo studio of all the, all the airbrushing they had to do to make this cover. There were 21 itemized airbrushes to make Miss I Don't Need Anything look that good. And yeah, I know you guys are... I, I said airbrush on purpose, not Photoshop, because that was the magazine cover that I used to explain this passage the first year I was here in 1990. And if that's true with a magazine cover who gets magazines, how much more now? Multiply the power of that lie and that value times a gazillion with the internet and the omnipresent social media influence in our lives. The ever-present bombardment of think shallow, value the superficial. Let's not talk about the character. This spiritual blindness is destroying everything it touches. It, it, destroys our, it destroys us physically, trying to keep up with this sort of thing, psychologically beating us down and judging other people. It's, it's destroying culturally. It's destroying the church, everything it touches. 
is being ruined by this vision, the way we look at life. I, saw, I was listening to an extensive interview between Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe, and he had a combat veteran on, uh, Johnny Joey Jones, who had lost both his legs in Afghanistan. And it was mostly trying to tell his story and how that happened, but what it really was was a master's class on how to be a man of character. And in a little segment talking about the power of social media being on our phones, Johnny Joey Jones says this. He says, we have lost our compass. We've lost our appreciation for the tangible things and the individual things because we are inundated by the intangible things. We have lost our ability to appreciate the smile. Listen, we have lost the ability to appreciate the smile because every other body part on a person is available in a better form, photoshopped for perfection at the stroke of a thumb. When I was listening to that in my car, I called my wife, Melinda, and I said, I sure love your smile. Sixty years ago, tomorrow, a preacher stood in Washington, D.C. and told the world about a dream. He said, I have a dream. I have a dream where my four little children will grow up in a country where they are judged not by the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. I have a dream. Jehovah has a dream that we would judge ourselves and one another by the content of our character and not their beauty or their success or their power. Those values, they're not from heaven, they're from hell. So let me just summarize. This spiritual blindness, it destroys everything that's sacred to God. It destroys our own lives. It destroys the way we look at other human beings in the image of God. It destroys families. It is crushing it and blowing up churches. And the reason is, is because when we look at other people and ourselves, we say, oh, well, they're tall and handsome and they're successful and they're talented and, and look at all that they can do. Let's make him or her, you know, king or pastor and we'll just hope upon hope that they have character. It comes up last, and they don't. And look what happens. It's all around us. Here's how I've applied this statement, this fact in my, in my own life. I, I, I come back to this regularly because I think if Samuel can have these values, I have these values. When I walk around, when I think about how I evaluate other people and I catch myself keeping score in this superficial, shallow way, I just go, you are such a sucker, Matt. <laughs> I don't talk nicely to myself. I just like, you know, look what you've done. You've, you've taken someone in the image of God and you've, you've valued them. You see them with the eyes of the superficial and the shallow, the petty, the temporal. And I'll repent right then and there. I'll go, oh, dear God. <laughs> I did it again and again. He's working on that we, every day. And then in the mirror, even in the mirror, it's like, I, am, I, am I asking myself, I've become less vain, self-absorbed? Am I, am I enjoying the simple pleasures of, of life? Do I envelop myself in the joy of the Lord? Things that matter, character. Well, that's the first lesson. It's the main idea of the passage. 
There's another part of the story we need to look at. If you remember, Jesse brings his seven sons in. There's not, none of them are going to be anointed by kings. So Samuel is like, you're, you're Jesse, right? Yeah, I'm Jesse. This is Bethlehem? Yeah. Are you the only Jesse in Bethlehem? Yeah. So, so I want you to listen. Watch this. This is the first introduction in the entire Bible to a man named David. And in Hebrew literature, especially in storytelling, the introduction is critical in, under, in knowing a person inside and out. The way the writer's writing this is so that you know this is the essence of David here. Verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are there any other sons that you have? <laughs> They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Let me summarize. The nation's only priest and judge comes to your town. The whole town is afraid. Then he comes to your house. And it takes all day to get ready for this anointment cer anointing ceremony. And the father not one time even thinks of his youngest son. Doesn't even come to mind. And nor does it with the brothers. David, this is David. He is the forgotten son. David is the forgotten son. Jesse does not say, oh, he's the youngest. Look at some other translations. Because the word in Hebrew is pejorative. It's a dig. It would be like you and I saying, well, <laughs> he's the runt. And he's tending sheep. So we didn't even tell him. That's what the Father's communicating here. And this, right here, is the first description of King David. This is what you must understand to know this man for the rest of his life, that his family has forgotten him all day. And not only that, his father refers to him as a runt. Did you know his name, David, will not be used in this whole storyline in his introduction, not by anyone in it. And Jesse doesn't say, oops, I forgot. I'll go get him. <laughs> oh, no. His response is, well, yeah, I mean, I got one more. He's the runt, and he's doing chores. It's Samuel that says, well, you go get him. Nobody sits until he gets here. Here's what you need to know in the way this is written so that we can understand the rest of his storyline. That this family life for David, it cuts him deeply. And it will affect the rest of his life. David will never say to a living person that he loves them. He'll say he loves Jonathan at his funeral. The deepest injuries, the most soul-twisting experiences that David has are with his own children because he doesn't know how to be a husband. And he's had no experience with being a father except the injuries that his father caused him. And 
This part of the storyline calls us as readers to cry out, David, oh gosh, David, deal with this evil truth. That you were not loved by the God-given father and family that was to teach you and show you what unconditional love is. Face this. David, do not run from this giant like you didn't run from the other one. This passage, this passage right here is one of the reasons at Grace Covenant Church, our value, our purpose is that we all become like Christ in all of life. In all of life. Because David's going to do what so many believers do, and that is he's going to compartmentalize his faith. He's going to say, dear God, I'm going to trust you, the Lord of the armies, in these battles. I'm going to trust you to be a a great leader. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my faith and I'm going to depend upon you in, in acquisition of land. But in this area over here about these injuries that were caused to me and have defined me, they're too painful and maybe they'll just go away. And so he just doesn't... And it costs him so much to leave God out of the most important part of of who he is. He will bury so many of his own children. When I was taking uh, uh, one of my seminary classes in graduate school, it was in in the whole counseling division here, and we were at a section called family therapy. And it was talking about the power of family and how it affects deeply the psyche of each individual and how family therapy came about because it was so necessary to cure the whole person. And the more he, the, the professor was going through all of the evidence, the more my fantasy of God's forgiveness and grace was just going to erase my past. And after the second lecture, People left, and I put my head down, and I said, oh, in light of kind of the things I experienced growing up in my family of origin and all that, I went, oh, dear God, I've got bills to pay, and I'm going to have to pay. And so I prayed this prayer. I said, please, dear God, not all at once. <laughs> not all at once. I just don't want, not all at once. I can't. I don't. So... If you won't do it all at once, could, could you just give me the courage to handle it at a rate that I can take this revelation about how this has influenced me and changed me? And then could you give me the wisdom to know how it's finding itself in my life with other people and the way I view myself and how I view you as a father? Could you give me courage and wisdom? And did I tell you, could you not do it all at once? There's, you can't compartmentalize. And here at Grace, we, we're so committed to becoming like Christ in all of life. We provide opportunities in our men's ministry. The, the, first, the first year of the Quest curriculum talks about home of origin and how to bring that into the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In the women's ministry, the Cultivate Discipleship Ministry is, has a lot of focus on courage But in this application, 
and you look at the, the, the fullness of David, be warned. You need to become like Christ in all of life. And when you pray the prayer that I was just mentioning, that you allow Lord in, into that, you can find that if he's Lord of all, he'll be Lord of your past. And when you go to him, he has a name. His name is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And he's waiting for you to bring him the thing you're afraid of, and, to, and he can heal you and make you well. It's a key point in the introduction of David. We need to see the way God sees, looking at character. And to you, the deepest wounds are not to be hidden and run from there to be brought to the throne of God. The third thing we learn in this passage is that God's favorites, character is painful. <laughs> character hurts. Watch what happens when David is, is uh, found. Verse 12, and so he sent for David, and again, look how he's, there's no name there. So he sent for him and had him brought in. And now he, he is ruddy and beautiful in eyes and handsome in appearance. And then Jehovah said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel went back to Ramah. The spirit of the Lord came upon him powerfully. And now David's character will be powerfully forged by the very spirit of Jehovah. And what does the spirit of Jehovah do with David? Sends him into critical, difficult, dangerous situations to forge his character. The next thing that happens in David's life is he is sent. Didn't matter if he had a choice. He'll serve crazy King Saul. And it'll be his job to pacify his mood swings. And then David will fight a giant because no one else will. And then he'll be hunted. He'll be betrayed. He'll live a life being sifted. And if you look throughout the Bible, I mean, just, just read through. It, it's as, as though like virtually every time the Spirit of the Lord comes upon someone in a mighty way, the next scene is persecution, jail time, hardship, wilderness, uh, a war <laughs> they have to become heroic in. And might I remind you that Jesus, the Christ, at the beginning of his ministry is baptized by John the Baptist, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And God himself says, the Father says, this is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. Therefore, off to the wilderness where you will be sifted. It's a pattern. And it's because character, the thing that God cares about, he looks, up, he looks upon values, the heart, that grows in the wilderness. It, it blossoms in the desert. It thrives during hardship. It's just the way I think we're made, maybe even before the fall, there's a, a nice book that's uh, recently written uh, by Michael Easter called The Comfort Crisis. And, I mean, to sum it all up, it's like if you do hard things, the rest of life is pretty easy. 
But here's, here's what he, he has some insight here, because we are living in a progressively sheltered, sterile, temperature-controlled, overfed, under-challenged, safety-netted lives. Most people today rarely, if ever, step out of their comfort zones. New research shows that depression, anxiety, uh, feeling like you don't belong are all linked to people never being tested. Character is doing the right thing and then not caring about your own personal happiness. Character is when you choose to do the right thing and not caring about your own personal happiness. But ironically, that's, I mean, it's paradoxical, but that's when you become happy. I mean, I'm not making this up. These are the words of Jesus. In his Beatitudes, Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those, blessed means happy. Happy are those who hunger and thirst not for happiness but those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you're a person of character and you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you're happy. If you pursue happiness, you don't get happiness. If you pursue righteousness, you get righteousness. That's how it works. But know this, suffering doesn't make a person a person of character. It doesn't give you character. Uh, suffering and difficulties and hardships, they're like the proverb that says the, the sun... The same sun that, that melts the wax hardens the clay. And that's the case in the storyline here. You're going to see that, that the same kind of difficulties that Saul has to endure, it's going to harden his heart, make him crazier away from, to get away from God and to up his pride while David is experiencing difficulties and hardships. And it, it will cause him to soften like wax. He'll become more humble more joyful, more caring and sweet. Because it's in that suffering that surfaces our motives. I mean, it, come, it comes to our awareness, quite frankly, that we're not first and foremost seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're seeking something else, and that something else we might be losing. It might be slipping away from us, our beauty, our power, our influence, our wealth, and we're clinging to it in some way, and it just shows us that we're living, in our first point, superficial, viewing and valuing the simple life. And so suffering brings that to our mind. We're forged by the Spirit of God in bringing difficulties in our lives, and it causes us to break these spiritual blinders off. Now we're no longer blind. Spiritually, I hope, if it works, you allow it to, and then you can confess. You can have, again, a, a transparent prayer time where you say, Lord, I have put my identity in things that do not matter. I see things in the way the world sees things instead of the way you see things. And I want you to know not only that, but I have, I have made the temporal more important than the eternal. And when I say that, I mean you. I have made you second and these other things first, and I see that now. I will hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's my goal. So let me just conclude by saying this. This story is the hinge of history. From this passage on, 
The focus will be on David. He won't be king until 2 Samuel, but it'll be all about David. So this is the pin, this is the hinge of all of history. And what we're to learn from this is that this was during a year of no hope, and yet God was working. And maybe this year for you is that year of no hope, where it seems like the world has gone insane. And we're inundated with constant messages to be afraid or angry. And we often submit to those messages. There seems to be little or no place for truth. And this passage comes to us and says, God is up to something. Don't make conclusions in our nearsightedness. Because the Lord sees all the earth to and fro. And he is looking to heartily strengthen the man or the woman that is totally dedicated to him. He's going to use common moments and common people. He's going to use people that the spiritually blind cast away and skip over and ignore. Those are the people he uses. Robert Alter is a Hebrew scholar, particularly in the art of uh, Old Testament narratives, absolutely revolutionized our way of understanding. Listen to what he says about this storyline and who God chooses to use. He said, David is a kind of a male Cinderella left to domestic chores instead of being invited into the party. He's been excluded from consideration, but in the tending of the flock, which he has been relegated, it turns out that those are the exact skills that he'll need in his battle with Goliath and to lead God's people. David's story is also heightened and stylized, playing itself out in the theme of the reversal of the prejudice of promoting the older sons that dominated the book of Genesis and the culture at that time. Instead of the older brother, it's the younger of the, even after the seven. David is the eighth, and therefore he's not even there at all. Have I said in, in the introduction of the life of David, his name is never spoken. <laughs> God loves to use the people that are skipped over, that are ignored, that are victims of the shallow ways that we see the world. When I, when I was meditating on this passage this week, I went back to few decades when I was in high school, I used to listen to the song by Janice Ian, and she captures the passion of being one of the victims of the not-so-pretty, the not-so-poised, the not-so-popular. The name of the song is called At 17. Let's see if I, can, I used to get choked up every time I heard it. Let me see if I can do that today without doing that. I, she says, I, she sings, I, I learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens and high school girls with clear skinned smiles who married young and then they retired. But the Valentines I never knew, the Friday night charades of youth were spent on one more beautiful. At 17, I learned that truth. And those of us with ravaged faces and lacking in the social graces, we desperately remained at home and we invented lovers on the phone who called to say, come dance with me. To those who know the pain of a valentine that never came, 
and those whose name was never called when choosing sides in basketball. Janicean says, yeah, it's a shared pain. But this passage comes to us and says, if you could put your ear on the Bible and hear the rhythm of the heartbeat of God, you would know this, that this is just the type of person that Jehovah God loves to use. The ones that are forgotten, that don't get the Valentines and don't get picked, because he does not see as man sees. He doesn't care about our traditions and values of the firstborn or the most beautiful. He sees character. So he, he almost makes a point of choosing the younger instead of the older. It's Abel instead of Cain and Isaac instead of Ishmael and Jacob instead of Esau and Moses instead of Aaron. He's looking for the women who have a heart after him that are unwanted and they're old and they're barren. And so he chooses Sarah over Hagar and Leah over Rachel. And this whole story, 1 Samuel, starts with an older barren woman named Hannah, whose soul is beaten down because she learned at 17 she was not going to count. But she counts in Jehovah's eyes. Jehovah loves to use the girl that no one wants. Jehovah will choose to use that son that is forgotten. It is through the weak and the foolish that God exalts his glory. It makes for a better God story, doesn't it? It does. And so this story about this nameless 12-year-old shepherd boy could be our story too. This Cinderella man. And this story ends as it pivots to chapter 17 when all the troops are rustling and getting ready for a war with the Philistines. And you could almost hear God himself say, hey, Cinderella, your coach awaits. Boy, we serve a great God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we are uh, cut to the quick if Samuel, who's <laughs> never lived outside a monastery, with all these years of experience, is still contaminated by the world system and he looks at people that way, then how much more us? So, Lord, I'd ask that you would bring to mind the thoughts and the values that we have and what we see and how we evaluate Maybe even how much it's destroying our own self and the other people around us. That we don't look at them as souls in the very likeness of your image and treat them as, as that way. Help us not be spiritually blind. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his wealth. But let the one who boasts, boasts in this, that they know you and they love you. And Lord, I, I love how your son is described prophetically by Isaiah. You're so committed to other values that Isaiah says that when the Christ comes, 
He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him and nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. Lord, we are grateful for the clarity that you've made this lesson today. I'd ask that we would be a church that is committed to following what you see and what you value. And we show that in our love and affection for one another and for those outside the church both. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.